Eric, this has me so flustered. I think you better come up and preach this morning. I don't think I can do this. Clayton, catch. Give it to Lorelei. I'm sure she'll teach me how to do it. We punked you. Ha ha. So. <laughs> so, yeah, don't change anything. It's right. It's correct. Leave it up there. Oh, that's funny. So, you've set a precedent now, John. Every year after the, uh, after the talent show, we're going to have to uh, prank the con- congregation in some way. Let's cope with that. That's funny. All right. Well, good morning. Children, you guys want to go to Children's Church now? You're welcome to. They already left. They already missed it. Well, all right. All right. Okay, how do I recover after that? We're going going to Colossians 2, not Hebrews 13. So go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to go to verses 1 to 7. The great struggle and the great encouragement... Um, is what we're going to talk about this morning from these verses. In my previous sermon, um, covering the verses in Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29, that, that, that sermon was entitled, the, the Great Mystery and Our Only Hope. And we discussed Paul's ministry uh, to the churches in general during that sermon. And if you recall, we talked about Paul providing a good example to us in five different categories. They were these, that, that Paul is an, an example to us of the right attitude. Remember, he was able to rejoice in his sufferings. He was also an example to us of the right assessment of self. Paul saw himself as a servant and as a steward of God's uh, truth and a servant to God. And he didn't see it himself as the owner. Thirdly, he was a, a, an example to us of the right mission. Remember, his mission was to fully preach the Word of God. And fourth, he was also an example to us of the right work ethic. Remember how he labored and strived toward uh, attaining his goal of preaching the full counsel of God. And lastly, he was an example to us of the right adoration. And you remember that Jesus Christ word cloud that I used a couple weeks ago when we were in Colossians last. Paul was an example of the right adoration. He adored Jesus Christ And his whole life and his whole ministry was about Jesus Christ. And so today our message on verses, the first seven verses of Colossians chapter 2 will in some ways sort of be an extension of of that description of Paul's ministry, except in this case, Paul's not describing his ministry philosophy or his practices in general. He's doing it specifically. He's describing his ministry on behalf of the Colossians specifically. And there's a couple of connections in the verses before us today to the ones that we, we, we spoke about last uh, time I was in Colossians with you guys. Um, and we'll get to those as we progress forward through the text this morning. But before we dig in, I want to give you guys, uh, like I always do, an outline of the path forward today. So for all of you note takers, so you uh, have a clear expectation of what I hope to do today. I want to make two main points today. Um, and each of those main points is going to have two sub-points. So I want to cover these two main points, and they are basically this. The first main point is Paul's twofold struggle. 
And the second main point is Paul's twofold encouragement. And then lastly, thirdly, I want to conclude our time together with a look at a closer look at Paul's descriptive language that he uses to describe Jesus. Okay? So three things. Two main points and then a description or a, 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 a pondering of the descriptive language that Paul used. So let's go ahead and dig into the passage. Let's read it and then I'm going to pray. Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Father in heaven, I, I come before you this morning so thankful for your word, so thankful for the truth that you have left us and communicated to us in your word. Thank you so much, Father, for all that you've taught me this week, these past few weeks as I've been studying to prepare for this message and Lord God, there's, I've done a lot of work of, of preparation, and I pray, God, I wouldn't lean on that, but that I would lean on You, Father, to do a mighty work through Your Word. There's nothing I could say that would improve upon Your Word. Help me, Father, just to faithfully explain it and illustrate it. And in some way, God, to communicate just how valuable it is. Lord Jesus, I pray for those who would hear that You would do a work in their hearts and minds. Lord God, that they would be encouraged in their walk with You, encouraged to treasure You above all. Father, thank You so much for this fellowship and for these dear brothers and sisters. And God, I pray, um, I thank You so much for the love that we share in this congregation and, and the, uh, the blessing it is to know and be known by these brothers and sisters. Thank You, Father, for the, the worship team this morning. Thank you for the beauty of the, the, the music that they put together. And Father, in leading us in song, thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you've drawn our hearts to you already this morning. And I pray, God, that you would just continue to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's dig in. The, the, the first main point, which is Paul's twofold struggle. All right? Verse 1. Verse 1 For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. And for those who have not personally seen my face. When I was in college, there was a man that I met, um, and I don't even know his name. He had a nickname, and it was King. And uh, King was a man in his early 50s, and he, ha he was on disability because he had a significant heart defect that pre prevented him from doing any sort of manual labor. He was in Bible college, and he was studying to uh, be a preacher. Um, this is after he had done some work in, 
in the secular field, and he came back to school. And um, whether or not King ever got a church to preach at, I'm not sure. I kind of fell out of contact with him. But I met him one day in the hallway, and this will be important in just a moment. And I met him in a season of my life where I was struggling mightily with a big decision that I had to make. I was in the midst of uh, a very stressful time in my life where I felt like I was at the end of my rope. I was, all of my sources were, were, were being utilized. Uh, all of my resources were being utilized. All of my time was being uh, taken up with things. I was just, I couldn't say no to anything. And I was so busy that it just created an immense amount of stress in my life. And it got to the point where I felt like something has to give or I'm just not going to stay healthy. And so I decided I have to give something up. And the thing that I had decided I needed to give up, I had given my word to, in a commitment, to be involved for a certain period of time. And so I had decided that I need to stop and relinquish that commitment before I had kept my word. And this was going to put people in a hard position that I would leave behind. And I never felt at peace about this decision to leave this commitment that I had made. And so the night came for me to actually go to the people that I was going to communicate this early departure to. It was a bunch of parents and students. And I had no peace about my decision. And I had made the decision, I'm going to leave. But I had no peace about that decision. So much so that as I was driving there, I could not drive myself to the meeting. I had to pull off and I had to pray. And I had been praying. It's just I felt like I was hitting a wall in my prayers. God would not grant me peace about my decision. And so I stopped one more time to pray. And I felt a very clear leading. You need to keep your word. And so I decided, I don't know how my resources are going to stretch to allow me to make this commitment or keep this commitment. I don't know how my time is going to Uh, to multiply, to allow me to keep this commitment. But I gave my word, and it's important that I give my word. And so I decided to change my mind right then and there, and I went to that meeting, and I conveyed to them what I had decided to do, and that that God had caused me to change my mind, and that I was going to fulfill the commitment that I had made. And I can't tell you the amount of relief I felt in the midst of that. I was bucking against God. I was pushing against His will, And no matter how much I tried to justify it in my mind, I could not arrive at a place where I was at peace inside until I relented to God. So the next day after that meeting, I go to school and I open my mailbox at school and I found a letter in there from King. Remember King, the guy who had the the heart issue? King's ministry, and I didn't know this at this point in time, was that he just put people on a prayer list and he really prayed for them. And in this letter from King, all he said to me was, Eric, two weeks ago when we met, I put you on my prayer list, and I've been praying for you every day. And I cannot tell you what gratitude filled my heart when I got that letter from King. To know that someone was struggling for me in prayer was an immense encouragement. And it came at just the right time. I had this feeling in my, my, my heart that, you know what, I bet he was praying for me last night. And I don't know if he was or not, but I just found it so 
the timing so coincidental and so appropriate that I get this letter that's saying he's praying for me and I had just finally found peace to relinquish my will to God's will the night before. And so it came at just the right time. Paul was agonizing and struggling for the people in Colossae. And his communication to them that that he was struggling for them in prayer was a massive encouragement to them. And you think about this, this word that he used back in chapter 1, verse 29. It's the same word he uses here in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says struggle. It's translated striving in in chapter 1, verse 29. But it's that same Greek word, except in here it's a, a noun instead of a verb. Paul wanted the Colossians to know that he struggled for them. He mentions those in Laodicea also and mentions those who have not personally seen his face. Paul struggled internally in prayer for these people because they were second-hand recipients of his ministry. These were people who were benefiting from what he had done through Epaphras. Remember Epaphras? He had told the people about the gospel message that he had received from Paul. And so Paul loved these people. He was united to them. He felt an acute connection to them spiritually. He loved them. And because he loved them, he struggled for them. And I want to ask you a question. Are there people in your life that you're struggling for? Are you struggling in prayer for someone? And if you are, and I hope you are, I hope there's someone in your life that you're struggling for. Have you told them of your struggle on their behalf? I think their knowing about your struggle for them in specific ways could be a source of great encouragement to them. Don't keep it quiet. Paul didn't. Paul told them. He told them specifically how he struggled for them. In verses 2 to 4, his struggle was twofold, right? He had two concerns for them. One was a concern that they would have strength and unity in something that they would receive. And the second concern he had for them, or the second struggle he had for them, was that they would have strength and unity in what they would refuse. So the first one is what they would receive, and the second one is what they would refuse. Paul communicates what he, that he wants their hearts to be encouraged. And when we see this word heart, we have a tendency to interpret this to mean simply emotions. And we should know that this is not really the sense of the word. It's kind of an English uh, use of heart here. It, It really means more than that. It means the center of a person's will or their thinking, their thoughts, and and their emotions. It's it's more a word that's meant to describe a person's entire inner being. Paul wanted the encouragement that he gave to this church to be received, to be an all-encompassing, not just a passing state of emotional well-being. He wanted them thoroughly encouraged. And that word encouragement basically means to come alongside or to call alongside. And you can, you can envision a person like my ex- exhibit with King in that story that I told you guys. You can envision a person who is discouraged due to some situation in their life who has a friend that comes alongside of them and it lifts their spirit by their attention, by the fact that you're concerned, by their prayers, by their sound advice, by a listening ear, by their words. 
If you ever struggle to discern how you may be able to encourage a brother or sister in their walk, it may be helpful to just remember that the word encourage means to come alongside. Just go alongside of them. Just be with them. And just literally do that for another person. Even if you don't necessarily know what to say to them, their knowing that you're there by their side may go further to encourage them than you think. The word in the Greek for encouragement is, is parakaleo. That may sound similar to you. Um, coincidentally, not coincidentally, it's very similar to the word that the Apostle John uses in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 to describe the Holy Spirit. He calls him... I think my battery just died. It's totally dead, yeah. Let me just use that receiver and then we'll switch it out. Good one, Dave. That was funny. Yes. Thank you. That was not part of the prank. It's on. This one will stay on, I, I, I pray. Pray for that. Come alongside me, guys. Pray that, pray that the mic stays on. So, but th- this, this word in the, that John uses in John 14, 15, and 16, it's translated as the comforter or the advocate. This is the, the Greek word paraclete, which is very similar to this word for encouragement here, parakleo. So Jesus sends the comforter to come alongside us continually for our encouragement when we trust in Christ. And this is the sense of what Paul is doing here. Encouraged, it can, it can mean strengthened. It can mean emboldened. Paul wants the Colossians encouraged by what he shares in this letter. And this letter is an exhibit of Paul coming alongside of them. And he continues to flesh out just how he wants them to be encouraged. So he goes on to say, having been knit together in love. So Paul's concern is not individualistic, right? He, Paul is not disinterested in the individual, but he's concerned with the Colossians' unity, being knit together. And the individual believers were part of something that was bigger than any of them as individuals were, Together they formed, and together we formed the body of Christ, the church, which is the visible expression of of Christ's life on this earth. And the force that bound them together was love. And in an immediate sense, their love for one another was what bound them together. But that fellowship of love that they shared with one another was based on on a deeper and more profound love that they had all received and realized in Jesus. It was his love working through their love that did the knitting that united them. And Paul goes on. He describes further the nature of this encouragement and this unity that he wants the Colossians to experience. He wants them to attain a full assurance of understanding. In other words, Paul wants them to have such an understanding of the message that they learned from Epaphras and by extension from Paul and what he was writing to them about 
that they were assured or fully confident in its truthfulness. What's meant here is that Paul wanted them to be 100% certain, rock solid in their conviction that the message that they had been taught was the truth. And what was it that Paul wanted them to understand? The gist of what he wanted them to get was what Paul was encouraging them toward, this unity that he wanted them to have. He wanted them to be assured and confident in the mystery of God, which is Christ himself. Resulting in a a true knowledge of God's mystery, it says, that is Christ himself. The Greek word that's behind that phrase, true knowledge, we've already encountered that in Colossians, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's the same word, epinosis. We had talked about that. Paul is saying the same thing that he has said before. He's used that same Greek word for true knowledge to refer to a knowledge of God's will, to refer to the knowledge of God himself, and now he uses it to refer to the knowledge of God's mystery, and he identifies that mystery as Christ himself. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul identified the mystery as Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now he's restating it in another way. It's Christ himself. Christ is the mystery of God. This mystery that was hidden the hidden God appeared in Jesus Christ. If you know Christ, Paul is saying, you know God. God's not a mystery to you anymore. He's not hidden from you anymore. He's revealed in Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know God himself. And he goes on in verse 3, Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wanted the Colossians to be absolutely certain that what they had in Jesus included all of the wisdom and knowledge that they could ever hope to attain. He struggled mightily that they might receive this knowledge and understanding regarding Christ. And I want to pause here real quick, and I want to insert something that I I believe is pretty important. I want to sharpen a little point that I made earlier um, from the text, and, and it goes back to this being knit together in love. This whole aspect of of being knit together in love that Paul says, he said something very similar in in his sister epistle, which is Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians are really alike in a lot of ways. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, he says something really similar to what he says here in Colossians chapter 2. Back in Ephesians, he says, he prays for the, the Ephesians that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Do you hear the similarities to what Paul says in Colossians with what Paul said in Ephesians? Especially in that little phrase. Did you catch that little phrase? He says, I want you to have strength together with all the saints. It sounds like what he's saying here in Colossians about being knit together in love. And I want you to understand how important this is. 
We can often be very individualistic when it comes to our faith. We do a lot of personal reading, personal writing in some cases, and personal thinking. You kind of of have to think personally. It's like your mind after all. Personal study, prayer. And these are all great things. These These are good. And we're trained to kind of speak of the importance of a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That, that's the language we, many of us came to know Jesus through, right? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? We stress the importance of a personal quiet time and person, personal devotion times, and, and these are all good things. I don't want to dissuade from them at all, but I want you to see, and I hope you can see this, that according to Paul, the, the grasping of this deep level of encouraging, assuring, understanding, and knowledge does not come in isolation from other believers. He assumes that this conviction of confident knowledge of Christ only comes in the loving community of Christ's people. You can't go it alone. You can't be a lone ranger Christian. You have to be in fellowship. If you are to understand deeply the love of Jesus, the knowledge of God's will, the mystery of God, which is Christ himself, if you are to plumb the depths of that knowledge, you must be in a community of believers. You have to be knit together with others. So Paul's struggle was that the Colossians would be strengthened and united in receiving this knowledge. But Paul wanted them to have strength and unity for something else. And this is the second sub-point. He wanted them to have strength and unity to refuse something as well. He wanted them to receive the knowledge of Jesus, but he wanted them to refuse something else. And this is verse 4. He says this, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Paul wanted them to have strength and unity in refusing false teaching. Up until this point in the letter, Paul's only given us clues in in what he has written that that something could be amiss in the Colossian church. But here in verse 4, he begins to speak to the issue directly. Something dangerous was beginning to make some inroads into that Colossian fellowship. Or at least it was beginning to threaten the Colossian fellowship or the Lycus Valley churches. That word delude is a word that means to miscount or to figure incorrectly. Sometimes in English versions, it's translated as deceive or beguile. There was a delusion or delusions possibly that Paul had heard about that was gaining ground in the Lycus Valley. Scholars call this the Colossian heresy, right? I sang about that. Do you guys remember the last words of the the song, important and perhaps? Anyway, we may sing that again sometime, maybe. Uh, So this Colossian heresy, it seemed to be a mixture of four things. And I'm not going to get into them deeply. I'm just going to list them because next two sermons are going to be on this in depth. So, but they seem to be a mixture of four things. Human philosophy, legalism, Eastern mysticism, and asceticism. So these four things seem to be elements of this delusion that was was threatening the Colossian church. So... The second thing he says was he mentions persuasive arguments. So there were those in the Lycus Valley who were really good talkers, or real good talkers, as they say down south. They could turn a phrase. They were smooth talkers. They were convincing. They had oratory skills. They were charismatic. 
but their message was a deception. Virtually every heresy that exists comes as an attack on one or two things related to Jesus. Heresies are either an attack on Jesus' deity or an attack on Jesus' sufficiency. And the Colossian heresy likely had elements of both. Think through that what we have covered so far in Colossians. This letter has some of the most conclusive and concentrated and strong statements that there are in the whole New Testament about the deity of Jesus. Paul is going over, bending over backwards using multiple phrasings to communicate to the Colossians that Jesus Christ is none other than God himself. And it's all over the place in Colossians. So it makes sense that some of these persuasive arguments in the church uh, were getting, that were getting introduced um, were calling into question the deity of Jesus. But if you also look at how often Paul uses words like full or fullness or all to describe Jesus in this letter, Paul's bending over backwards to defend the sufficiency of Jesus also in this letter. So it makes sense that there might have been some with enticing ideas that were being passed around that caused people to be tempted to look elsewhere to find true knowledge. Paul knew if they truly understood and received the knowledge of Jesus that they would refuse these bad ideas. These bad teachings that were beginning to spread. And I think this is instructive for us today. I want you to hear me on this, guys. We are susceptible to deception in our human frailty. We don't like to acknowledge this weakness. We like to think of ourselves as discerning, as wise enough to see through deceptions. We consider ourselves logical and fact-based, not easily manipulated or emotionally manipulated. We have a high opinion of our own intelligence oftentimes. And the scariest thing, hear me guys, the scariest thing is that we in our pride are more easily deceived than we are convinced that we've been deceived. You know what I mean by that? In other words, what I'm saying is, once you're deceived, the likelihood that you will ever realize that you've been deceived is very slim. And that's frightening. Because we're too arrogant to acknowledge that we've been deceived, that we were wrong about something. Guys, a big part of becoming a Christian is the humble acknowledgement that we've been sinfully and pridefully believing a delusion. A delusion about life, a delusion about sin, about death, Delusions about God, delusions about His creation. We all believed any number of delusions before we understood the gospel and trusted Jesus. And sadly, little remnants of that pride can linger after we become Christians, and we can still fall prey to delusions and persuasive arguments. And here's another reason, guys, why I want to sharpen that point. Another reason why unity and fellowship are so important for believers. Because in our day and age, virtually all of us have our own little isolated online lives, don't we? We all have all sorts of voices that influence us, that other people don't know about. We don't know if they're getting the same influence or the same teaching, because we have our own little channels that we follow and subscribe to and things like that. In fact, that's what they're called, social media influencers. 
We can get led down all sorts of rabbit holes. I'm guilty of this. I love going down rabbit holes. We can entertain all sorts of ideas, some of them bad ideas. Not all of them are bad, necessarily. But we get acquainted with all sorts of teachers and influencers, and we, they build our trust, and we eventually let our guards down, and we stop searching out whether things are true or not. We stop validating the things that we're receiving. Is it true? I mean, it's just the nature of our world today. We're all going to come into contact with teachers and influencers that have the potential to lead us astray. So bring these things and these ideas and these influencers to light in the fellowship. Talk to someone about the things that you're hearing. Bring them to the elders and pick their brains about some of these things. Not that we'll have time to listen to your rabbit trails because we have our own that we're going down, I'm sure, but, but bring them to the elders and pick their brains about those things. Talk to John and, and Eddie and myself. This is why a fellowship is important. A fellowship is a safeguard against delusion. A tight fellowship based on the word of God is a very strong impediment to being deluded. Let's move on to the next point, the next main point, which is Paul's twofold encouragement. So in verses 5 and 6, Paul encourages them for two things, 5, 6, and 7. He encourages them in two ways, for their current progress, and he encourages them toward their future progress. So notice how he begins verse 5. He says, even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless, I am with you in the spirit. So Paul's telling them that he's a part of this knit together community in love. And uh, this letter, if we were to paraphrase it, Paul may be saying something like this. This letter is proof that I am coming alongside of you to strengthen you and to, and to lovingly encourage you. And as these persuasive arguments that you're hearing, as you see these and hear them, bring those new ideas. Bring those new, new ideas that you're hearing. Bring them up and compare them to my letter. Compare them to the instruction that you received. Do, do these ideas about knowledge and about God and about mystery and about fullness, do all of these things that you're hearing, do they agree with what you heard from me? Do they agree with what you heard from Epaphras? Paul goes on. He says, one of the reasons that, that he's encouraged is that he's rejoicing to see that there's a good part of their fellowship already. There's a good report too. It's not all bad. The Colossian heresy has not infiltrated yet, it would seem, based on verse 5. But there's risk that it will, Paul says. So Paul thus far, though, is happy to hear about two things. One is this, they've got good discipline. In other words, the Colossian Christians had a reputation for being an orderly group. Things were in good order. They did things properly. And that word uh, for good discipline is used a lot in the book of Hebrews. Um, and it's, every time it's used, it's, it's used in, in, in mentioning, describing the priestly order of Melchizedek. That's the, the, the word order. Good discipline, it's that same word. The priestly order of Melchizedek. That word's also in Luke chapter 1. And it's also describing the priestly order. Not the priestly order of Melchizedek, but it's describing Zechariah, who's performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order. It's the same word. It can be used in a military sense also, but that's probably not what's going on here because 
the rest of Scripture doesn't include that kind of military imagery when it uses this word, and Paul doesn't really mention it in the context here either. But implied in this use of this word is, is a concept of discipline. And that involves training. Discipline involves training for the, for the end of producing something, to produce growth, to produce character, to produce excellence. Discipline. 1 Timothy 4, 7-8 says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And discipline's not something we're born with. It's not something that's in our natural state very often. Most of the time we're undisciplined and we move toward disorder. You know, we're like the second law of thermodynamics in the way we live our lives a lot of times. We move toward chaos and disorder instead of discipline. But when one becomes a Christian, when we become followers of Christ, discipline ought to become part of our lives. Disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And our pursuit of spiritual disciplines ought to be comprised of practices that are revealed in Scripture. And they should be centered on the Scripture. Our disciplines ought to be toward reading and studying and meditating on and praying through and teaching. Our disciplines ought to be all surrounded or centered on the Word. We're reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids at home, and we're not quite to this book yet. We're in book three Book four is a book called The Silver Chair. Have you guys read The Silver Chair? Great book. At the very beginning, there's this character named Jill who gets sucked out of her world in London, and she's brought to Aslan's country, and she's on this great high mountain with a cliff on it with Aslan, and Aslan is telling her uh, that he, she is going to go to Narnia, and she is going to observe four signs, and he's going to tell her ahead of time what those four signs are. And so he does this. He tells, them her, tells her the four signs, and he makes sure she remembers them. She ma- he makes her repeat them back to him. And as he's doing this, he tells her and, and impresses upon her over and over again, you need to remember these four signs. When you wake up in the morning, go over them in your mind. When you go to bed at night, go over them in your mind. Throughout the day, recall them to memory and go over them. You must not forget these four signs. Well, the whole book progresses, and... Jill forgets the four signs every single time, right? And it's all about the pitfall she falls into because she forgets the signs. She ignores the word. She ignores the instruction of Aslan. Spiritual disciplines all should be for producing the result of deeper knowledge, understanding, and obedience to the scriptures. And they all need to be surrounded, centered on the word. And the end is God's glory and our usefulness to Him. Our disciplines need to be centered on the instruction. Paul says also he's rejoicing that they have stability in their faith. And this one's related well to discipline. A disciplined life is a much more stable life, isn't it? It refers to the unmoving character of the Colossians' faith. Paul was rejoicing for these brothers and sisters that their faith was stable and that their, their conduct was disciplined in the face of increasing false teaching that was threatening their fellowship. And then Paul continues. He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, at the beginning of verse 6, the Colossians had received Jesus. Just as Paul had indicated in his struggling section earlier, 
His desire for them that they would receive Jesus, the the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself. And they were stable in this conviction that Christ is God and that Christ is sufficient. But this receiving was not just a simple one-time past tense event, even though it looks kind of that way in the English. It was actually an ongoing receiving, a reception that, that Paul intended for them to have. And it only just began when they first put their faith in Jesus and when they believed the gospel. And that's why Paul follows this up with, The end of verse 6. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Walk refers to daily conduct and lifestyle, right? And when you think about it, it really makes sense to use this imagery of walking. Because unless you're disabled in some way, one of the things you do literally every day is walk. And you don't think about it. Even if you have a sedentary office job, you walk every day. You still get up to go to the bathroom. Or you get up to get a cup of coffee, or you go to the copier, or you go to someone's desk, or you walk to a meeting, or you walk to the lunchroom. You get up and walk every day. We walk all the time, and we don't even think about it. And it's interesting to me, in the past few years, we've discovered the value of measuring how much we walk, haven't we? With our Fitbits and our smartwatches, they all have embedded technology called a pedometer that measures how many steps you take in a day, right? I don't have these, by the way. I don't want to know how few steps I take in a day. It turns out one of the greatest measures of health is how disciplined you are to be walking a lot in a given day. It's literally one of the best exercises you can do to give your physical body exercise. Just go for a walk. Just go for a walk. Now, Paul uses this word in a figurative sense. But the imagery, I think, is powerful. As naturally and as effectively as we have trained our bodies to walk, so we ought to naturally and effectively train our spiritual lives in Jesus Christ. Do our minds go as, go as reflexively to the Scriptures as our legs do to walking when we have a destination? Are we so underneath the surface, guided by and directed by the scriptures, and so influenced by God's truth that we we don't even think about it? It's just so much a part of what we've done. This is what we do when we walk in Jesus. We become familiar with him. We become moved by and trained in and disciplined in. A Christian who isn't spiritually walking in Jesus is like a person who's lost the ability to walk and whose muscles are atrophying because they haven't been used. In a practical sense, we can see what Paul means by this imagery of walking. And in the next verse, he directs the Colossians, if you look in verse 7, he directs the Colossians to do just as they were instructed, right? They had instructions to follow. They had a teaching to base their discipline on. Remember, Paul had said in the previous chapter that his mission was to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. They were not left with no scriptural basis to build their faith on. And as disciplined, walking according to these instructions, it would produce the following things in their lives. Verse 7. A disciplined walk in the Lord would produce these things, and it will for us as well. Paul is thankful that they are firmly rooted in him, in Jesus. 
And this, this one had already happened to them. It was perfect past tense meaning, once and for all. And their role in this rooting was passive. In other words, Jesus did it for them. Jesus rooted them in the soil of his word. When they believed the gospel, Jesus planted them lovingly in the rich soil of his very own life. They were in Christ. Jesus did that for them. The second one, the second result of, a, of, of, of walking in Christ is that, you would, they were, that they would be built up in him. And this one was happening to them in an ongoing sense. In a perpetual present tense, they were to be being built up in Jesus. And their role in this one is passive too, believe it or not. As they walked in Jesus, Jesus did this for them also. He built them up. He'll do the same for us. The third one, being established in your faith. As they walked in Jesus, their faith would become more and more solid, is what Paul means by this. And this work is also done upon them by Jesus. They're passive recipients of this. Jesus stabilizes and establishes and made more and more firm and solid their faith. And he'll do the same for us when we walk in him. And the last one is overflowing with gratitude. All three of those previous gifts bestowed on the Colossians that they received from Jesus, that that rooting in him and that building up in him and that establishing in him, they, they were supposed to produce the only result in the Colossians which they had an active role in. And that active role that they were supposed to engage in, this great spiritual work that Jesus does in and for us, should produce the same thing in us an active overflowing of gratitude. This is worship and praise and thanksgiving given back to God in response to all of his immeasurable gifts to us that we receive in Jesus. MacArthur says this, that this gratitude is the praise that completes the circle in which the blessings that flow to us from God flow back to him in praise and adoration. Amen. All right, so I've covered the first two main points, and now I want to get to the conclusion, which is the third thing I wanted to do, and that is to kind of go back and look at some of the descriptive language of Paul describing Christ. Okay? We see this primarily back in verses 2 and 3. See what Paul says here? He says, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the wealth, full assurance of understanding, true knowledge, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Think of those words. It's very clear in looking at this language that Paul is trying to communicate the value of Christ. He wants them to see the value of Christ as surpassing and vast and beyond comprehension. So he uses words like wealth and treasure to appeal to them and to convince them to appreciate what they have in Jesus. Who wouldn't like more wealth? Don't raise your hand because it's probably not true. Who wouldn't like more wealth, right? Who wouldn't like some more 
decimal points in their bank account, right? We all would like that. Who wouldn't like to find a hidden treasure? Jesus himself realizes that anybody would love to find a hidden treasure. He uses the same type of imagery. He says, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. After all, it's the wealthy who seem to have this fullness, right? That we all want, at least in the material sense. They're the ones that that have all that they could ever want, at least from a monetary perspective or from a material perspective, all that they could want to make them happy. And who among us hasn't dreamt of what it would be like to have tons and tons of money? I remember as a kid, I used to love watching the cartoon DuckTales. Did you guys ever watch DuckTales? Anyone who's a Gen Xer like me will have watched DuckTales. We would let ourselves into the house after school each day while our parents were at work, and we would let the TV entertain us for a couple of hours, and DuckTales was on every day. Scrooge McDuck, Flint Hart Glomgold, these two rivals, Scrooge constantly striving to maintain his status as the richest duck in the world, and Flint Hart constantly striving to unseat Scrooge from that lofty pedestal of being the richest duck. Scrooge had this massive money bin. Do you remember this? Filled of gold coins. And Scrooge would go swimming in the gold coins like it was water. I mean, he, would, he was the only one that could do it, too. Everybody else would like, oh, you can dive in and swim? And he would just dive in and swim in the coins. And anybody else would like hit it and just thud like they're hitting a concrete wall or something. Anyway, so it was filled with all of these coins. And Scrooge would take his nephews... Huey, Dewey, and Louie. He would take them on these treasure hunts. And he would take them to these faraway, remote locations where hidden riches from ancient civilizations were found unearthed beneath all of these ruins. It was a great show. I, I, I loved it. Treasure hunts are, are, are all around us, by the way. In a few weeks, Easter's coming up. And uh, many of us have this tradition with our kids. We do Easter egg hunts, Right? What is an Easter egg hunt other than a version of a treasure hunt? We're looking for a a treasure. And most all of us, in some way, are on a treasure hunt in our lives, in a figurative sense. We're following a course in life, a map in life, that we hope will lead to well-being, to prosperity, to financial security. And our, our, our society has drawn all sorts of maps purporting to guide us to these things, right? These treasures of financial security, of of health and well-being. There's many preachers today that capitalize on this natural desire to pursue wealth within people. And they proclaim a false gospel of, of prosperity. And this leads people to believe that God exists only to bless and to benefit them with health and wealth. And the only string attached is a willingness to tithe. If you'll but tithe... If you'll give in faith, just give to this ministry, then God will open the floodgates of prosperity to you and your family. And the more you give, the more you will receive. And they twist scriptures that seem to say things like this to beguile people to part with more of their money. Paul made no such promises regarding the gospel of Jesus. He didn't preach that a person's faith in Christ led to earthly or material blessings. In fact, he would actually, you could argue he indicated the opposite. The opposite may actually come. In in actuality, you may suffer because of your faith in Christ. The only promise of wealth and treasure that Paul made to his followers 
was Jesus himself. Jesus was Paul's great treasure. And he longed for those he taught to value Jesus in the same way. Think about this for a minute. Those who find a treasure are joyous. Remember Jesus' words back in Matthew 13, 44? Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Those who find a treasure are joyous. Similarly, here in Colossians, Paul, Paul's teaching them that when a person found the treasure of Jesus Christ, they overflowed with thanksgiving. Joyous thanksgiving. After all they had found of the riches of the wellspring of all the spiritual wisdom and knowledge that they had in Jesus, how could they not be joyous? They'd found him. The one that saved them. Who blessed them with all of these spiritual blessings. And they received all of these from him. Apart from any merit or work or worthiness on their part. They had this treasure as a gracious gift. But there was another type of treasure being dangled in front of the Colossians. There was another message that was purporting to be good news, but the end result of that teaching would not be overflowing gratitude. It'd be something else. A better analogy for this false message from the Colossians, or false message that the Colossians were hearing, they were flirting with it, it wouldn't be a treasure hunt. A better analogy would actually be more like an escape room. Have you guys ever done an escape room? Anybody? Raise your hand if you've done an escape room. They're actually very fun. I, 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 I've, I've done one of them before, and it's a very good time. It's fun. Uh, Mandy and I, a few years back, went with Matt and Christy, and we did an escape room. And I think it's the only one that I, I've ever done. We went on a double date one Saturday afternoon, and we went and did an escape room over in Westchester. And when you do an escape room, the premise is to use the minimal clues and objects that are provided to solve the mystery, to build the puzzle, or discover the pattern that unlocks the next clue or set of clues, right? You guys follow what I'm saying if you've done one of these? And the clues are cumulative, right? They build on one another. So a key that you receive from a puzzle that you, you've, you solved may unlock a drawer. And in that drawer, it may hold a piece of paper that, that has a series of colored marks on it. And those colored marks may correspond to the colored flags that appear four steps down the road, right? The whole process has an air of mystery about it. It requires keen abilities of logic, pattern recognition, concentration, decision-making, experimentation, and all of this with the ability to perform these things under pressure, right? So when you successfully finish an escape room, you don't feel joyful in a grateful sense. You understand what I'm saying? Not a thankful sense. You don't feel joyful in that sense. Instead, you feel joy in a prideful sense. Like, oh man, I am so clever. I was able to finish that and get all the way through. Yes, we won. We made it out. Right? Do you see what I'm saying here? 
The joy that you have is sort of a self-centered joy, a prideful joy. I'm proud of what I did. This is different than what Paul proclaimed would be in Jesus. If you're in an escape room, another possible sentiment or emotion you may feel after completing an escape room is jealousy. What do I mean by that? Well, I speak from experience, right? Because if you've ever done one of these escape rooms uh, with a group of people, inevitably there's one person in the group who's better at deciphering the clues in a quicker manner than the rest of the group, right? And so they become sort of the elites or the, uh, the leaders in the group and their success in all of this stuff, they end up propelling the group to escaping the room. And when we went together, the person that was really good at this was Matt, right? Matt was re- Matt's just a smart guy. He's very smart. You, you guys know this. He excelled at this type of challenge. And it quickly became apparent that if left up to the rest of us in any way, we may still be in that escape room, like hoping someone would slide a pizza under the door for us or something. But if I'm being totally honest, in those moments, I felt jealousy at Matt's capabilities. Just being honest here. When we were in the midst of that escape room, I felt jealousy. Sorry, Matt, sorry, I never told you this before. I'll forgive you for making me feel like a dummy if you'll forgive the four flat tires on your van <laughs> later that day. So, okay, why did I share all of that about an escape room? So there was a teaching being dangled in front of the Colossians that appealed to a baser set of emotions and motivations. In a similar sense, this false teaching facing them had the capacity to create spiritual pride and envy in them. Instead of humble joy at a treasure found, there would be this arrogant self-satisfaction at an accomplishment attained. Does that make sense? Instead of a grateful heart, there's an entitled sense of having earned what you have. And greed toward others who are better at getting it than you. Those who have attained a higher level of spirituality than you. Pride and envy. You see, it would seem that those introducing these heresies to the Colossians believed in their, that in their arrogance that they had discovered a better treasure than Jesus. They thought that they had a, a deeper knowledge of spiritual matters than what Paul was sharing in the gospel. And it seems that some believe that the initiated could attain to this deeper knowledge by means of a different spiritual being or beings than Jesus. Through secretive ritualistic practices, channeling visions, and we'll get into that in more detail in the weeks to follow. And those who could access these things would have an air of superiority about them, an air of elitism about them. That was contrary to everything that Paul proclaimed to the Colossians. When you see the true value, though, of Jesus Christ, the allure of this type of teaching that appeals to your pride, it just dissipates. If Christ is your great treasure, you'll be immune to persuasive arguments of those that would delude you and deceive you. On the flip side, if Christ is not your highest treasure, you'll be ripe and ready fruit 
for those who would lead you astray and draw you away from the wellspring of all wisdom and knowledge. So along with Paul, my great striving and encouragement for you this morning is this. Let Christ be your great treasure and your highest aim. Let Christ be your greatest treasure and your highest aim. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I, I come before you, Lord God, as a, a weak vessel, Father, prone to wonder, prone to be deceived, and all the while thinking of myself as more highly than I ought to, as someone who's wise or discerning or intelligent. Oh, Father, may I humbly come to you and receive the glorious riches of all the wisdom and knowledge that are in Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that I would live in such a way and that these brothers and sisters in our, in our fellowship, Father, would live in such a way that just shows that you, Lord Jesus, are their greatest treasure their highest aim. I pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Stand, if you will, for the benediction. May your hearts be encouraged. May you be knit together in love. May you attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding And may you truly know God's mystery through his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And may you find in him all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge that you could ever need. Depart in his peace. Amen.